0: Section 14 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Betsy Walker, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 2, Chapter 2, Part 1. "'I've got Louis Pender, you know his work, of course, "'coming here unexpectedly for the weekend, "'and as there is a student's dance at the school tomorrow night, "'I thought we might go on there after dinner with our little party. "'Will you be one of us?' "'Do. "'We dine at quarter to eight. "'Don't answer, but come.' "'On the morning of the day appointed for Miss Gedge's meeting, "'the post brought Joanna this invitation from Mrs. Lovett, "'and she read it through in a growing distraction.' "'It seemed to her that she had never before wanted so much "'to accept an invitation as she did now, "'and a malignant fate had fixed the affair at St. Saviour's "'for seven o'clock that same night. "'She would know better another time "'than to let herself be nagged into giving her word. "'But in the same moment, Joanna took her resolution. "'Come what might, she would be at Mildred's at a quarter to eight, "'and she would be there if possible,' without having broken the promise to her mother. How was this to be done, she did not yet know. She only knew that a way must be found. True, this was the first time in her life that she had heard of Lewis Pender, and under Nilsen's influence, she was becoming less impressible by Mildred's celebrities. True, also, the little dancing she knew had been picked up during play hours at school, and she had never been to a dance. But at this moment, she could imagine nothing more desirable on earth than that she should meet this man with the pleasant name at dinner and go to the dance afterwards. She wanted to dance, even should she not have the courage to accept a partner for anything but a reel or a set of lancers, in either of which she felt secure. She looked again at the letter. "'Also, as an experiment,' wrote Mrs. Lovett in her slapdash handwriting— I have asked that young Mister Urquhart, who you may remember in our Italian class, in spite of his appalling shyness, I gather he remembers you. I discovered him today having tea at the Tullises. It seems Professor T thinks well enough of him as a budding anthropologist, and there was a postscript telling that Louis Pender was in Glasgow as the possible painter of some panels in the city chambers, about which there had been some talk of late. Yes, Joanna was determined to go to that evening in Panmer Crescent, but how was it to be done? Quite apart from the St. Saviour's complication, she well knew that the dinner could only have been achieved by great skill, and the dance by deceit or open rebellion. In all these things, her mother's will was set hard against hers, and there was the particular promise besides. There was no means she did not now consider, from flagrant lying to wild revolt, from the plea of illness to the attempted cajolery of Miss Gedge to alter the hour of prayer. But, one by one, each plan had to be rejected, and again nothing remained but the sheer determination. Then. Sudden and simple, like the unexpected appearance of the sun on a black day, came the solution. In a fever of excitement, she laid her plans. She was triumphant, amazed that she had not thought of this at once. It would involve no more deception than either she or Georgie had perforce practiced a hundred times before where their mother was concerned. At half past five, she went to her bedroom, locked the door, and dressed for the dance. Her dress, which she now wore for the first time, had been made amid the mingled jeers and acclamations of Sans Souci from a curious old piece of grenadine belonging to Julie's girlhood, black with bright blue stripes and at intervals little yellow embroidered flowers. It had a low bodice, tiny sleeves, and a very full short skirt. And when the girl had put on over it her day blouse and a dark skirt, covering all with a coat, no one would have guessed her secret. She pulled a pair of black stockings over her bright blue silk ones, and she hid her slippers and a black lace fan in the inside pocket of her coat. It was done. When Julie came down to the lobby, ready in time for once, she found her daughter waiting for her with red cheeks and shining eyes, It gave her great delight that Joanna took her arm affectionately in the street and her hopes for the meeting ran high. Part 2 Not until the proceedings at St. Saviour's were in full cry did Joanna know herself to be their quarry. Long ago, in self-defense, she had perfected her faculty for not listening, and on this occasion she had rendered herself inaccessible the more easily as no answering speech was required of her. Exulting in her hidden finery, and full of anticipations for the coming evening, she had been for some time wrapped quite securely away. Indeed, a more observant person than she might well have been misled by the innocent beginnings of the meeting. Not more than a dozen people were present, including Julie, Joanna, and Miss Gedge. The others were Mr. Bridgewater, the incumbent Miss Bostock, a deaconess, and some of Miss Gedge's students who wore their dark blue uniforms. After a short request by Mr. Bridgewater that their coming together here might not fail in its intent, a hymn had been sung. A passage from the Bible followed. Then, at a prearranged signal, all the women rose, turned themselves about, and fluttered to their knees. Whereupon the clergyman, having done his part, tiptoed out and left them, softly closing the vestry door behind him. It was this odd departure of mister Bridgewater that first roused Joanna to what was forward, and when, after a few strained moments, Eva Gedge led in prayer, she knew herself entrapped. There was no mistaking the suggestions that were now laid before the Lord, first by Eva, then, after a pause of dreadful discomfort, by Miss Bostock then, at the end of a breathless term of suspense, by one of the younger women. These last clearly suffered acute nervousness at having to address God in public. But this was an art they had come to Gedge to learn, so not one of them would relinquish such an opportunity for practice. And, in scarcely veiled language, every one present was praying for Joanna. Joanna's first impulse when she realized how matters stood was of sheer wrath, She wanted to leap up and fling out of the vestry full of praying women. But she did not so act. She realized at once that such rudeness, while it would pain her mother, would give the highest satisfaction to Miss Gedge. Besides, what after all did it matter? These people could not harm her, could not prevent her from doing as she wished. She turned her head, furtively counting the bowed backs, By now the last, the very last, surely, of the students was praying. She was a timid creature, and her shaking voice sounded sincere. We ask thee, she was saying, that our dear young sister, with the gifts thou hast given her, may not be among those that perish, but may enter with all joy and everlasting delight into fullness of life both here and hereafter. At the words, fullness of life... Really so sweetly spoken by the trembling young woman, Joanna was swept by a wholly unlooked-for wave of emotion. She could do no other than make the prayer her own. But in the succeeding silence, she grew cold again. The same thought was in everyone's mind. Was not Julie going to pray? In an icy panic, Joanna changed from her own cry for life into the supplication that her mother might keep silence. Oh, God, don't let mother pray out loud. For Jesus' sake, amen. Again and again, she repeated the same phrase with passionate fervor, and a huge load was lifted from her when, with a quiet rustle of skirts, they all rose from their knees. The meeting was over. As they stood at first, Joanna felt embarrassed. At her mother, whose face was bathed in tears, she could not look. At Miss Gedge, she would not. She gazed steadfastly at the shy girl who had last prayed. Thank you, she said at length, the first to speak, and she moved nearer to where the other stood. I liked your prayer, and I hope it will be answered. It was good of you to come. The student blushed as deeply as Joanna was blushing, but she shone as well, and a cloud came over Eva Gedge's face. Joanna enjoyed a moment of pure malice. She had triumphed. Then, turning to her mother, she spoke loudly enough for Eva to overhear. I shall have to go at once, mother, she said. I promised Mrs. Lovett to call there this evening. It may be fairly late before I'm back. You mustn't wait up. And she was gone before a word could be said in reply. It was already twenty minutes to eight, but Mildred's house was not far off, and Joanna would be fleet. Part Three Even to herself, Joanna did not admit how nervous she became in the Lovett's house. But from the moment the front door closed between her and the street, there was always a tightening of all her nerves. As she passed through the square entrance hall, so unlike any other known to her with its black-tiled floor, bright blue carpet, and white walls hung with black-framed etchings, her very muscles would stiffen a little in the involuntary effort which these decorations seemed to demand. In the same way, the rooms, though they were neither so large as the rooms in Colossi Street, nor nearly so rich as Aunt Georgina's, imposed a particular restraint. The way in which a few flowers stood up from a shallow glass dish, the black sofa bolsters tasseled with gold, the signed scribbles in pencil, generous as to margin, by Sargent or Burne jones which leaned unfixed on a molding against the drawing-room wall and here and there, resting on the same ledge for the convenience of handling, a framed autograph letter. These were evidences of a world in which Joanna did not yet move easily, a world where the small talk, like the material furnishings, had its own shibboleths of seeming freedom and simplicity. But on this evening, Joanna had great hopes of escaping the usual ordeal. The swift transition from St. Saviour's to the house in Panmer Crescent The emotional tension of the prayer meeting, the bizarre concealment of her ball dress acted upon her like some stimulating and skillfully mixed potion. Although not late, she was the last guest to arrive, and was glad to have the bedroom to herself so that she could take off her outer clothes unnoticed. The extra garments and the race through the streets had made her hot, and it was a delicious refreshment to emerge in her thin evening gown. As she shook out the voluminous skirt before Mildred's shovel glass, she seemed to herself as light as gossamer. She palpitated in response to the brightness in her own eyes, to the wild color in her cheeks, to the inebriating savour of life on her palate, and, on the way down the blue-carpeted stair, she felt as if the vessel of her being were full to the lip with incandescent flame. From the moment she entered the drawing-room, she knew she need fear nothing, for this evening at least. To her bright, unseeing gaze, the room seemed full of people standing up. Actually, there were only six, counting herself. She shook hands with the Lovets and with Mrs. Plummer, a woman distressingly thin, with masses of untidy black hair and a green velvet dress. Then, turning in obedience to a sign from her hostess, she became conscious of a strange man, blasé, yet dapper, with a straw-colored mustache and rather prominent hazel eyes. He was staring at her, through the strong lenses of his glasses, with the painter's intentness. Indeed, but for that look, which she had sometimes seen in the eyes of Nilsson, Joanna would not have taken Louis Pender for an artist, particularly by the side of Mr. Lovett, the carpet manufacturer, with his stooping shoulders, velvet jacket, and silky gray beard, his guest appeared a person entirely worldly. Of the three men present, he was the only one wearing a stiff shirt, and his dust-colored hair was quite short and carefully brushed. It looked incongruous with the astonishing yellow mustache. Yet, in spite of his deference to convention, there was something so resentful in the man's whole appearance that the friendliness of his hand-clasp came to Joanna as a surprise. She looked inquiringly, involuntarily, straight into his eyes, and while she saw how their color was accentuated by fair lashes, she had the curious sensation that her heart was holding its breath. Then, when he heard Joanna's foreign name, Pender's lids lifted slightly with interest. So engrossed was she that it was an effort to attend to what Mrs. Lovett was saying but presently Joanna understood that she was to accept Mr. Urquhart's shyly proffered arm to the dining room. On the staircase, she was so conscious of Pender who walked behind with Mrs. Lovett that she did not say a word to her companion, but on renewing the acquaintance, it had surprised her to find out how well she remembered him. This was the first time she had set eyes on him since the Italian class, from which she had not knowingly carried away any vivid impression of him. Yet now his dark, silent face, the bashful body, appeared almost intimately familiar. At dinner he hesitated several times before achieving speech, and Joanna, instead of helping him, waited with indolent cruelty. She guessed at his shyness, but in her own hour of release showed no mercy. Besides, she was watching Pender, who sat opposite at the further corner of the table. There was a jauntiness in his movements which might have been taken for self-assertiveness, but somehow Joanna knew better. Somehow, with a secret warmth of knowledge, she saw him unsure, bitter, on the defensive. I only learned yesterday from Mrs. Lovett that you were back in Glasgow. Lawrence had spoken at last, and Joanna was caught by the pedantry of his phrasing. So shy he was, yet so precise. And she smiled at him, dazzling him with all the new joy in her heart. "'And I learn,' she replied, "'that you are the coming anthropologist.' As she spoke, he saw her gay smile change into a regular schoolgirl grin, which put everything else out of his head." Not till this moment had he known how keenly he had looked forward to meeting her again. He still remembered the pain of unreasoning anger and emptiness which he had heard of her marriage and departure to Italy. How was it that she had been back for three whole years without his having once seen her? Glasgow is a bigger place than one thinks, after all, was what he succeeded presently in saying. But Joanna only smiled a vague assent, and he saw that he had lost her. She was listening, not to him, but to the talk between Pender and Mrs. Lovett. She had gathered that Mrs. Tullis, the professor's wife, was calling next day to meet Pender. As I shall stay down there until I know one way or the other, Pender was saying, I may as well do a portrait of her if she'll sit to me. Yes, I was to have painted her two years ago up in town, but Tullis got his Glasgow job and carried her off so nothing came of it. "'It wasn't a commission, of course. "'She was a friend of my wife's.' "'Then he was married.' "'Rousing herself, Joanna turned again to Lawrence. "'You are a friend of the Chulises," she asked him. "'But Mrs. Lovett cut gaily across his unready reply. "'Yes, Mr. Urquhart, you tell us. "'Do you think Mrs. Tulis so pretty?' she demanded, "'to his consternation, dragging the young man into the open.' At Mildred's question, Joanna looked instinctively at Pender's face, and she saw embarrassment like a cloud pass over it, leaving it the next moment devoid of expression. While Lawrence sought his answer, Mrs. Plummer spoke for him. "'I think she is really rather beautiful,' she said, with her overweighted head on one side, as if she gained a reflected glory by praising the good looks of another woman. "'There's something of the woods about her, don't you think?' "'that it's very lovely. "'Farouche, I think, is the word. "'For myself,' Mrs. Lovett retorted, "'I should rather have said vixenish than Farouche, "'with that hair and those two little sharp white teeth in front. "'Pretty Mrs. Fox is my name for her. "'Come and meet her here tomorrow, Joanna, "'and tell me if you don't agree with me.' "'Mildred was always jealous of red-headed women,' "'whispered Mr. Lovett in a stage whisper aside to Joanna.' and the others laughed and fell apart. Joanna, who did not know the professor's wife by sight, had taken no part in the discussion, and she had been all the time aware of Pender's so different isolation, which yet seemed to bring him nearer to her. She felt a hatred rising in her against this Mrs. Tulis, against Mrs. Pender, and against Mildred, perhaps against all women because they were somehow responsible for the despicable uneasiness under pender's practiced surface she wondered if he would want to talk to her at all at the dance then she would discover him perhaps with this thought this longing there flashed unbidden in her memory the vision of a little door in italy once pointed out by mario It was that door in the garden wall of a villa through which a famous woman was said to have welcomed her lover. Strange that Joanna should think of it now. Strange that it should have remained forgotten all these years to recur this evening in an unacknowledged, all-unsatisfied desire. Part 4. At the school, the fun was in full swing when Mildred's party arrived. A waltz came to an end as they were taking off their wraps, and Joanna thought Mrs. Plummer would never stop rearranging her hair, which stayed perfectly untidy in spite of prolonged fingering. When at last they entered the dancing room, the students were grouping themselves noisily for the foursome reel. Most of the dancers already stood facing one another in two double lines which stretched from end to end of the long classroom. But still here and there, some couples ran linked, "'laughing and sliding on the polished floor "'in a race for the few gaps left. "'Onlookers sat round on benches or on the floor. "'Many had kept on their overalls of holland or blue linen, "'and numbers of the girls were so young "'that their hair still hung over their shoulders. "'There was something easygoing, "'almost countrified about these dances. "'The sloping, timbered ceiling, "'hung with a few lanterns of yellowish paper, "'made Joanna feel as if she were in a barn,' and she thought that the easels and thrones stacked in each corner looked like farm implements. And, if it was a village festival, Mr. Valentine Plummer united in himself the parts of the squire and the vicar. He came effusively to greet the newcomers, pressed them to join him at once, and shepherded them to the far end of the room. There's always room at the top, he said, cracking his little parsonish joke but neither the Lovets nor Mrs. Plummer nor Pender could dance the reel. Lawrence Urquhart glanced at Joanna, biting his lip. "'You, then, bella signora!' exclaimed the director jocosely. "'Come! Shall it be said that a Scotswoman refused to take part in a reel?' "'Will you?' asked Lawrence. But Joanna shook her head, excusing herself. "'Ah, but do, do dance it!' Not Lawrence this time, but Louis Pender had spoken." He stood close to Joanna and begged like a lively child who fears the loss of a long-promised treat. And Joanna, blushing deeply with pleasure, laughed and yielded. She gave her hand to Urquhart, who was clenching his black mortified brows. Only to please this other was he accepted. Although a couple was wanted almost where they stood, he set off with her to the far end of the room. It was some satisfaction to him that he was really dragging her there, but he suffered, too, all the way from the hateful reluctance of her body. She was humiliated by his knowledge that she desired to dance before the other man. But by her backward drag on his arm, she thrust him down so far below herself that her humiliation was a triumph compared with his. Still, he plodded on, his head forward and hanging a little, and they had barely got to their places when the band let fly with the tune. To Joanna's great astonishment, Urquhart danced well. It was the last thing she had expected of him, but he sprang featly to music, and his body was delivered by the steady rhythm from all stiffness and self-consciousness. As he passed and repassed her in the figure eight, taking first one of her hands and then the other, as he placed his own hands on his slight hips or raised them high above his head, as he swung his partners round, lifting them each time clean off the floor, Above all, as he came to go through his complicated steps, facing Joanna in the middle, gravely leaping on his small highland feet while the couple outside beat the time with their hands. The young man was wholly possessed. He had to the full that tranced and happy seriousness, which is the spirit of a national dance. From the outset, he caught Joanna up into something of his own dignity, winning her surprised acknowledgement. Then... As the reel progressed, she began to lose all sense of identity. Every moment she became less herself, more of a rhythmical expression of the soil from which they both had sprung. The memory dawned in her of some far-back ancestress, of whom unheedingly she had heard her mother tell. Fresh, dim, like sweet dawn, she could see the Stirlingshire farmer's daughter carrying the milk pails at sunrise and at sunset to the castle on its hill. She could hear the swinging clink of the pails, could smell the spilt, clover-sweet milk, while the farmer's daughter gave her lips to the young, unknown Welsh soldier who kept the drawbridge. She was that lass, that meeting without which her being would not have been. And soon she was not even these. Beneath the candid darkness of Lawrence Urquhart's face, soon she was no more than a field of barley that swings unseen in the wind before dawn. But suddenly, though the music went on, and though her feet persisted in its rhythms, she was recalled into herself. Louis Pender, edging along by the wall, had come unknown to where she was dancing, and now that she had seen him, she knew nothing else but that he watched her through his glasses with his practiced unhappy eyes. She did not look at him, but his being there changed everything for her. It changed subtly the spirit of her dancing into a conscious revelation and a less conscious withholding. She became an appeal, a claim, a scarcely endurable excitement. She could not help herself. The moment the music stopped, she longed to get rid of her partner. He was inexpressive again, but that was not why she wanted to be quit of him. When they had sat in the corridor for a minute and he had brought her a little red glass of lemonade the next dance was announced. It was a shottish, and Joanna feared that Urquhart would ask for it. While she was wondering how to refuse, Carl Nilsson passed them. She had not known him there till then, and ran to him with relief, an impetuous greeting on her lips. She introduced the two men, and Urquhart went up in her mind as she saw them clearly take to each other from the first. Carl was no dancer, he said, and had only looked in for a moment. He was even now making for home, yet he stood talking to the younger man, which Joanna knew he would not have done out of mere politeness. Her own escape, however, was still first with her, and as soon as she could, she slipped away to where Mrs. Lovett was sitting. She did not even notice that Carl and Lawrence had drawn two chairs for themselves into a quieter angle of the corridor. End of section 14 Recording by Betsy Walker.